0: Hello, and welcome to today's Clinical Care Options Neuroscience Podcast, Halting Hallucinations, a discussion of management strategies for Parkinson's disease psychosis. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Phipps. Today's episode features a conversation on Parkinson's disease psychosis between two expert clinicians, Dr. Marwan Sabah, a professor of neurology in the Division of Alzheimer's and Memory Disorders at the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Marta San Luciano. An attending neurologist in the Movement Disorders and Neuromodulation Center at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center. They will be discussing Parkinson's disease psychosis from diagnosis to management, sharing insights from their clinical practice and real-world experiences. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Diagnosis and Management of Parkinson's Disease Dementia. For more information on Drs. Sabah and San Luciano, along with the link to the complete program, including an on-demand webcast presentation, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Sabah and San Luciano have to say.
1: We're going to start out by talking about Parkinson's disease psychosis and Dr. San Luciano, you I'm sure see uh, this is a common complication in your medical practice of patients. Uh, can you describe what is the uh, PD psychosis and give me some of the prevalence uh, data?
2: Yes, thank you. Uh, symptoms of psychosis, including hallucinations, like seeing or hearing things that are not really there, and delusions—you the know, having beliefs you know that are not true—for example, like the police after them—are are common. Uh, are common in patients with Parkinson's disease. I would say, you know, up to seventy or even more percent of patients, as the disease progresses, you know, are fairly common. Now, it occurs typically not at the beginning of the illness. But usually within years into the disease, anywhere between, you know, five and and 15 years, even even later, predominantly in people who start with the disease later in life.
1: And so is it more common to see hallucinations, delusions, both? Is that a tip off on the visual hallucinations on synucleinopathy or Lewy body or what's the thoughts there?
2: Yes, visual hallucinations are, are quite common and they tend to be one of the earliest signs of Parkinson's disease psychosis or even you know, Parkinson's disease dementia, uh, one of the early signs. It could also appear as side effects from medications in all dopaminergic medicines that we use in Parkinson's disease have potential of causing visual hallucinations. Uh, again, people tend to see things you know, rather than hear voices or have other sensory experience. And visual hallucinations are common you know, for other synucleopathies, in the Parkinson's disease, dementia with Lewy bodies, of course. And far less common in other uh, diseases in which cognitive symptoms are not prominent.
1: And uh, so would we expect when the cognitive symptoms occur, the, would the, uh, the neuropsychiatric features increase? So is that a comorbid condition of the PDD or is it, you can see it at any phase along the way?
2: Psychosis can happen along the disease course, although it's highly unusual early in the disease, especially in younger individuals, individuals younger than 70, younger than 60. It certainly can accompany the cognitive decline part of Parkinson's disease, dementia, but not necessarily. However, commonly co-occur at that point, but psychosis can happen in the absence of cognitive impairment in patients with Parkinson's disease. I have to say, you know, that I I rarely, rarely ever see Parkinson's disease psychosis in the absence of any cognitive impairment.
1: And I saw the statistic that in time, 40% uh, will develop PDP. That seems very high. I remember seeing Dag Arslan once said that, you know, we used to underestimate the amount of PDD going on. Uh, and now it's up to 75% of PDD. Are we seeing increases in prevalence of PDP as well? Or is it recognized more or what's the thought there?
2: Yeah, I think I I, I agree in which, you know, as in, we're getting better in the treatment of the motor symptoms, patients are living longer and they're having the disease for longer. And that is a risk factor for the development of um, cognitive impairment and and Certainly, Parkinson's disease dementia or other dementias that can, that can appear the the comorbid um, you know pathology of Alzheimer's and and Parkinson's disease and dementia. Uh, I would say that in regards to psychosis, it is also more recognized now. I think we're diagnosing it better now. Uh, we're particularly asking about it more, and patients are getting a little bit more open. So I think both. You know, there's uh, increased recognition. There is, you know, the fact that, you know, as people live long in date, you know, the symptoms are going to happen, you know, more often. I don't think per se, you know, that uh, there is a true then increase in the prevalence, you know, because of other factors.
1: Now, uh, you were kind of mentioning before uh, some of the risk factors for development of PD psychosis. Can you kind of elucidate those
2: again, please? Yes, I think advancing age is always a risk factor, you know, for PD psychosis as well as for PD dementia. And together with that is disease duration. The longer one has had Parkinson's disease, the higher the likelihood that the symptoms may happen. The use of medications to treat Parkinson's disease, but particularly some of them, you know, dopamine agonists, you know, can have hallucinations and delusions as side effects or may uncover um, a Parkinson's disease psychosis that may be subclinical or near the surface. But also, carbidopa levodopa, the ones you know, with fewer you know, side effects, you know, can trigger psychotic symptoms. The presence of REM sleep behavior disorder, you know, can be a risk factor as well, in for PD psychosis, but it's also pretty prevalent. And then, obviously, you know, prior history, this is not talked about too much, you know, but prior history of psychiatric illnesses, you know, with pre-existing, you know, psychotic features, you know, will make it more likely that people will have uh, symptoms in the context of Parkinson's disease or maybe decompensated with the Parkinson's disease medications.
1: Can you speculate the mechanism? So, if I give a dopamine agonist, I'm hitting this the D1 and D2 targets. Just mechanistically, how would that trigger a
2: hallucination? That is a good question, and I'm not sure if I can give a very a very yes. thorough answer. But I think in the same way that that dopamine agonists, you know, who stimulate stimulate primarily D2 receptors, you know, that and and. and I think in particular, stimulation of those receptors are, are thought to be behind you know, the neuropsychiatric features of those drugs. And they share in some commonality you know, with what happens in PD psychosis.
1: If a patient comes in with PD psychosis, kind of what is your approach in terms of diagnosis, management, things like that?
2: The very first thing, you know, to do is to eliminate other potential causes, you know, that may be, you know, before landing in calling some disease psychosis. It is common to develop symptoms of delirium that may include hallucinations and, and delusions in the context of infections, particularly urinary tract infections or upper respiratory infections, you know, so an infectious workup, you know, would be first. Then a thorough review of medications. Medications may have been added, doses may have been in increased, uh, and that may need to be revised. So, if possible, some of the dopaminergic medications, you know, they can be reduced or some could be eliminated, like dopamine agonists, like anticholinergic medications. Those are common. Sometimes they're used, you know, for urinary symptoms that are also common in Parkinson's disease that may trigger some of this of these symptoms. And then if need be, and if there are concerns that it's not only psychosis, you know, but there may be cognitive impairment we may pursue in, um, more in detail psychological testing in, to delve farther into whether cognitive decline may be a part of the syndrome. Again, so laboratory testing, urinalysis, urinar- just x-rays and thorough exam and interview, of course.
1: I have to tell you, I have uh, diagnosed more UTIs than I could ever imagine <laughs> as a dementia doctor. I didn't think I was going to diagnose so many UTIs as a, as a neurologist, but
2: that's, That's a valid point. I, I do that often too. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate on whether DLB and PDD are a different construct or the same construct. What are your thoughts about that?
2: The eternal dilemma. I, my opinion has always been that it is part of the same spectrum of, you know, if a patient with, you know, pretty classical garden variety Parkinson's disease, you know, lives, you know, for, for many years, decades. In, in the majority of those patients are going to eventually meet criteria for Parkinson's disease dementia. That Parkinson's disease dementia may look clinically very similar to somebody with DLB, you know, with the only difference, you know, that the timing of the onset of the motor symptoms and the cognitive symptoms. Pathologically, they look similar. Now, right. what is it different that sparks, you know, that pathology in a widespread manner versus a more localized and small, slowly progressing that I don't know. But I, you know, they're, I think they're similar enough that we can consider them in the two extremes of the same spectrum. And there are yeah. patients, especially older patients, you know, who may start with Parkinson's disease and may have very subtle cognitive changes that may not meet criteria, but within three years, you know, they they do. And so I think those are the ones that are sort of in between, as opposed to the more classic, you know, patient who starts in the mid-50s. And, very little to no cognitive impairment, and it's only when they reach age seventy-five, and now they've had it for twenty, twenty-five years, when they have the motor symptoms.
1: So, do you use any screening tools or quantification tools like the neuropsychiatric inventory, or to quantify the severity or morbidity? of the Parkinson's related psychosis? There's in the Cohen-Mansfield, there are a lot of dementia ones. I don't know if they do that in the Parkinson's side. Uh,
2: we typically, for clinical care, we do not use, you know, validated tools for for psychosis. You know, we, we right. will do, you know, for, for cognitive impairment in uh, the bedside, and we, just a maybe just a MOCA, um, drug uh, cognitive assessment. Um, and then you know, patients who are we are considering, you know, for for surgery, they will, they will have a big battery of neuropsychological testing, you know, with a neuropsychologist. But we don't use particular validating screening tools. We do ask very in very in very detail you know, about this particular symptoms, not only the patient, but a, you know, but a uh, a caregiver, somebody who knows the patient really well. Um, and we'll follow the symptoms closely. Have you found those, uh, those scales or did you ever use them? Yeah, I mean,
1: I, uh, I'm aware of them, but I don't, like you in routine cl- practice, I don't use them. In clinical trials, we use them a lot, cl- uh, but not in routine practice. I, I mean, like you, I try to, I'm sure, I, I mean, I try to be efficient in my clinic and those t- scales take time to do and modification. Mm-hmm. You know, usually in a few questions, you can get an answer on to whether uh, they have uh, uh, some psychosis uh, delivering. And I don't quantify it. I don't talk about this, you know, burden or disability of it. But I capture it as a a, part of my interview. Let's move on to talk about the treatment of PD psychosis. And the first thing to think about is, is it reversible, preventable? Any thoughts about that?
2: I think in, in some circumstances, it could be reversible, particularly those that are clearly associated with having a concomitant infection or clearly related to a medication use, particularly dopamine agonist. If one withdraws the medication, uh, treats the infection, the, the, the psychotic symptoms, you know, might likely go away, you know, without any other interventions. Um, in the absence of those circumstances, it, a, I think it's it's harder to, to say, you know, that this would naturally go away. And those tend to be the patients in which, you know, there can be associated, you know, cognitive impairment or part of their people in or in the path of Parkinson's disease dementia. Um, I, I think you know, in those cases, you know, it's expected that those symptoms are gradually and progressively going to get worse over time. Non-pharmacological interventions in Can be helpful. I mean, I think the avoidance of such medications, the clarification of you know, and simplification of medication regimens, um, having a routine uh, for patients, um, and then um, and then obviously, physical exercise is is well. I think by now you know fairly well recognized to probably slow down the progression of Parkinson's disease, at least the motor symptoms. I am not sure we have enough data yet to say that it can slow down um, psychiatric symptoms in Parkinson's disease, um, but it probably goes in the same lines of how physical exercise can be beneficial in in cognitive impairment, similar to Alzheimer's disease.
1: So let's talk about some of the treatments. Uh, So our first thing, of course, is we would change environment, remove offending drugs, like dopamine agonists, check for urinary infections and things like that. But let's say you do all that and they're still persisting. What would be your next choice? Would it be uh, PIM or Clozapine, Quetiapine, none of the above? How would you go about going next? So you've done the workup, you check their urine, you've taken away the dopamine agonists, they're still psychotic.
0: Yeah. Then
2: the next the next step is in pharmacological intervention, and and uh, I think most of movement disorder specialists, you know, will agree with me that we have three options because you know, all other antipsychotics are contraindicated as they will worsen, you know, the Parkinsonian syndrome, and the three that we have available are quetiapine, quinavancerin, yeah. and uh, clozapine. Mm-hmm. Most people, you know, despite you know some mixed evidence, you know, will still start with quetiapine because it's Readily available and usually easy to obtain, Um cheap, and it can you know cause you know some sedation. You know, so there's a lot of you know nighttime agitation. It can it can help you know with with sleep. It is not potentially devoid of side effects, including worsening orthostatic hypotension and then daytime sleepiness uh, and some you know QT prolongation and other cardiac cardiac issues. Uh, answering has become you know. Readily available as well, or easier to get, um, and it is very well tolerated, and it's once a day, um, and it can be effective. It has been surprising, and you know, again, the tolerability, you know, the few side effects. Um, although, again, in my opinion, the, the the downside of it is sometimes, you know, for very severe psychotic symptoms, they may not be enough. Yeah, and then yeah. you know, when we've tried the above, then we will bring the big guns. And we'll do a clozapine. We don't typically like to do that if we can avoid it, you know, because of the need for blood monitoring, uh, which nobody likes, you know, to the, the blood testing, you know, first every week and then every month. But it can be quite effective. It also, you know, may cause some weight gain and other things, but it can be quite effective for psychosis and also for dyskinesias, uh, if, you know, it so happens to be a, you know, a comorbidity for that particular patient. We rarely would use, you know, other medications like mood stabilizers. If the psychotic symptoms, I mean, if it's just visual hallucinations and they're relatively mild, meaning there's percept insight, there's the occasional little animal that they see, they're not threatening. We may start rather than with a, you know, medication like quetiapine, answering or, or clozapine, We may start with an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor first, and that sometimes can do the trick. Um, and ribostigmine is one that we commonly use in you know in Parkinson's disease that tends to be well tolerated, but you know if if it's more severe it may not do the trick. What um, what what
1: is your approach? It's funny because I was just remembering what you, from your remarks I saw a patient yesterday in the clinic with Lewy body dementia who was on risperidone and and I'm thinking yeah. how did that? I mean, this a new patient. You mean. How how did that happen? Uh, uh, so. I uh um I would say that I almost have never used clozapine so I have quetiapine and a lot of and some pim experience uh but uh, the quetiapine we're using tends to be you know 25 hs 25 bid 50 hs but I uh, I understood from the ph- psychopharmacology that to get the antipsychotic effect you have got to go to 150 or 150 tid are you using those kinds of doses because I I'm used to using 25 bid 58 hs things like that for the sleep.
2: Uh, that yeah, that is you know a very good very good point, and I would say you know for very mild, you know for sleep you know for slight delirium in the context you know of you know, especially Parkinson's disease dementia, but they may have some psychotic features. You know, the 25 time or 15, that's typically enough, but when patients have severe Parkinson's disease psychosis, you know, one needs to go into that range and we will start, we'll start low and then slowly titrate, titrate, titrate it up. Worsening of orthostatic hypotension is a, is a concern when you go into those doses because, you know, it's also something that tends to happen as, as Parkinson's disease advances. And they can have, you know, a significant hypotension and even syncope. Uh, but it is true that for especially rather than visual hallucinations, you know, especially very entrenched delusions, that you have to go a little bit higher up, and it makes sense you know, from a pharmacological perspective.
1: On of and I have found the last two times I prescribed it, it took about four weeks to six weeks to see an effect and what it did which was curious was it it lessened the frequency of the psychosis but what had a bigger effect on the severity like they kind of became aware that they weren't as psychotic i had one patient who thought she was dead the cotard syndrome as i've been told and uh, she a few weeks after starting Pimavantrin, she said, I'm I'm still feel like I'm dead, but I know I'm not. And she was more aware and the family was able to manage that that psychosis better. And the other one took a, like I said, about six weeks to work. Are are you finding that Pimavantrin takes a while to work? Or am I just going about dosing around because I'm using thirty four milligrams a day?
2: yeah no that's the dose that i that i would use you know starting with 34 day i think it takes you know about 20 days you know to reach a steady state or around around there and that is true i think you know quetiapine you know especially you know the sedation effect you know happens right away and that may be beneficial on itself you know but for answering, i you know i have seen i tell people just to hold tight you know for the first month and then see and then not decide you know, prematurely that it may not be working just because yeah. we haven't given it enough time. And, uh, and, and I agree, I think, that, that it lessened the severity of the delusions to an extent that they were manageable, even though they did not disappear. I think that's a good good explanation.
1: One last question uh, is, a lot of these patients have disturbed sleep. Are you using clonazepam or what are you using to manage the sleep disruption that you see in these patients,
2: sleep disorders are almost universal in Parkinson's disease, and and they they range from a variety of of different sleep issues, um, you know, REM sleep behavior disorder. You know, when people have the dream enactment, you know, we will start you know with just melatonin, and that's the trick for the most part, you know. But we may go to clonazepam, and some of these patients may be on clonazepam, usually low doses, you know, less than one milligram at bedtime. Um, which, you know, if they do develop cognitive impairment or the disease advances, you know, may need to revisit as you know, they may impair their balance and other things. We chronic insomnia, uh, frequent awakenings and daytime sleepiness, also very common in Parkinson's disease, as well as Parkinson's disease, dementia, Parkinson's disease, psychosis. I try to start conservative first, again, start with melatonin and sleep hygiene, uh, and then move you know to something like trazodone. And then if need be, then the clonazepam at low doses. If there is a component of psychosis, or um, then cortiopine then becomes a little bit of a, an available option. And uh, we tend to stay away you know, from other medications because of the high likelihood of inducing abnormal behaviors during the night. In the PD group, that would be more pronounced? I don't know if it's been formally studied, but certainly from clinical experience, um, right. that has been the case. So I've been trying to shy away, you know, from that type of medication class. Um, never say never, and occasionally there's a the patient that is very beneficial. Um, and certainly, a, a high doses of Zolpidem have been studied in the in the treatment of dystonia in the context of Parkinson's disease and others. But um, but in general, especially in an elderly group of patients. With Parkinson's disease, who may have psychosis or, or cognitive impairment, um, probably not the greatest idea if it can be managed in somehow else. How did you manage sleep disorders in intervention patients?
1: The spectrum, uh, I mean, Lewy body is, as you and I, as you would have described it, how I would manage the Lewy body patients. But for the patients with other sleep disorders, I would do a sleep study to see if they have, you know, sleep apnea. Uh, I would give them trazodone. Also, I would. A lot of them are on over-the-counter any cholinergic drugs like the PMS, the diphenhydramines, mm-hmm. the amitriptylines, and I try to get those off. And I also use mirtazapine from time to time as well. So yeah. we have a few options. Interestingly enough, there is a dr- two drugs that I love, which is um, rameltion and suxevin. Sirexivan is actually approved for sleep-related uh, uh, disturbance in Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. And neither drug, rameltion or Sirexivan, are used commonly because they're just hard to get approved. So it is what it is.
2: Well, good to know. You've given me some ideas. <laughs>
1: thank, you. Like a thank you. thank you very much.
0: Thank uh, you. Thank you very much to Dr. Sabah and San Luciano, and thanks to you for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program Diagnosis and Management of Parkinson's Disease Dementia, and to learn more about this topic from Clinical Care Options, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.